You're listening to a DM podcast. This podcast was created and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Gadigal people. The creators of this podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of those lands and extend that acknowledgement to the elders past and present, and also to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. And welcome to Kinky History, the podcast where we discuss all of the dirty little secrets they probably left out of your history books. I'm your host, Esme Louise James. I have a very exciting episode in store today because I am being joined by a very exciting guest. Say hi, mum. Hello there. (laughs) I'm Susan James and I'm Esme's mum. I am joined by my incredibly talented mother today and we are going to be talking uh, a mix of sex and stats, Mm. which... If you've seen our series on TikTok called Sex Statistics, is uh, something we do quite well. <laughs> it's a blend of what we both do best. Do you do the sex and I do the statistics? <laughs> <laughs> no, but we came up with the idea one night in lockdown, um, as we were bubbling in, uh, bubbling in lockdown, uh, that what we should do is contextualize the history that I was doing on TikTok uh, with modern day statistics. That was your idea. Well, it's because you're always talking about history and about how it keeps going round and round and things change and they come back. And we kind of said, well, what's happening these days? Mm. Is it very, very different? We assumed it would be. Mm. But it's not really what we found out in our exploration. No, we found it was completely different. We found that we actually are continually going around in a circle. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's been so interesting in our like deep dives about everything under the sun, whether it's uh, stats on rimming, polyamory, anal, whatever we're looking at. Um, None of them were what we thought they were going to be at any stage. No, and it's all been very interesting. I've learned such a lot. (laughs) (laughs) But I think the best part of all of this is like being able to do this with your mum. Like... It's a, it's a very novel relationship that when we were making sex statistics, I would even get like text messages from you out of the blue. And you're like, hi, honey. I'm just letting you know that rimming's coming into fashion. Um, so we should probably like talk about that. And that would like just come up out of context. Or like sometimes I get messages being like, um, honey, did you know that like everyone's masturbating a lot more with uh, vibrators now than they were 10 years ago? Love, mum. You didn't have to keep posting those texts though, Esme. I mean, the amount of times I went onto Instagram to see that you'd posted one of my texts to you which said I'm on masturbation today (laughs) (laughs) I remember that coming up on my computer like as I was working and just you know mum message I'm doing masturbation today honey just thought I'd let you know and like out of context (laughs) That is the wildest message of all time. I know that you're like looking at stats on masturbation for the documentary, but um, but I love that. I think it's uh, it's been so fun. We've don't, had so much don't fun. Don't all mothers and daughters have these conversations? No, <laughs> really. But I even thought that was what was quite interesting when we like put up our series on sex statistics. One of the most recurring comments was about the fact that it's so wonderful that a mum and daughter can have this conversation so casually and so normally. Hmm. But I, I think that's a great thing. It's, it's been fun working together, but 
our lives are always like this anyhow. They were like this before sextistics. <laughs> we spent a lot of time together over the years. Esme went to school where I taught. Oh. And, then, and then she left school and she went to university where I'd moved to too. <laughs> <laughs> we we literally live around the corner together and I suppose also we've we've brought up um Esme's brother who's disabled as carers together. Yeah. So we have a very best friend bond. Yes. Yeah. But when we uh started, uh one of the first things we kind of looked into when you suggested that we should add stats to kinky history and I was like that is not my qualification and you just kind of like dumped a pile of papers on the (laughs) table like don't worry honey I've actually done it for you this is one of those suggestions that um (laughs) was gonna happen but we sat down on the couch that day and one of like the most interesting first facts that you found was about the question of what even is sex Well, because I find it incredible that so many different people have completely different ideas about it. Mm. I mean, you've actually got people out there who consider deep kissing to be sex. That one absolutely threw me. But then you've got others, and it's only a very small percentage, but there's a small percentage, it's like nearly 2% of the population in the last Australian study thought that if they actually had vaginal intercourse... It wasn't sex. So I, I just don't know what these people... What they're people, waiting for. You know, what, 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 has, what has to happen? And when you look at it like that, you actually think, well, that, that's ridiculous. That statistic's wrong. But it's actually, it's not wrong. It's because some people don't think they've had sex unless they've had an orgasm. Yeah. So you have to kind of read into all of these things and just try and find the story behind it. What yeah. is it that these people thought that they needed to do? Absolutely. Having uh, oral sex, 68% of people in the last study thought that that wasn't sex. That wasn't sex? It, it wasn't sex, but 86% of them are doing it. So <laughs> <laughs> They're completely off the hook. <laughs> yeah. so, so some of them are, are totally guilt-free when they're having oral sex, aren't they? <laughs> you know, if we look today about that we still don't have a set definition of what we consider sex to be, that has been such a big part of history coming like through and through that our definition of what we consider to be sex continually changes mm. uh, depending on which age we're in and everything. Mm. And there was that really fantastic moment in terms of like a tipping point in our understanding of sexuality that we, you know, we've spoken about, uh, which is around the 13th century when you have someone like Thomas Aquinas mm. um, and he changes basically what it means for good and evil in terms of sex back in ancient greece you have aristotle right and aristotle is defining what good and evil is and he says you know if something does its purpose what it was designed to do it's good it's got to be functional got it's got to be functional if legs can walk they're good legs if a wombat can shit uh, a square poo it's a good wombat because very fun fact uh, wombats do have <laughs> a cube 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 poo cube poo is that right? cuboid poos a cuboid poo I mean how cute <laughs> is that but when that came to sex uh, when Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century then like looks back on Aristotle's philosophy he's like okay we can now use that to define what is sex and what isn't sex So it has to have a purpose, so therefore it has to be just for procreating. Yes. 
which means oral sex is definitely out because you're not going to get a baby from that, are you? No. Oral sex would be evil. Yeah. And so would anal. Anal is evil. Mm. Intrinsically evil, to use his words. Mm. He defined that your genitals could only be used for, like, urination and procreation that was basically it so there's a lot of acts outside of that that then become intrinsically evil like uh the puppetry of the penis you can't perform puppetry with your penis that is intrinsically evil because that's not the purpose that your penis was designed for well i really enjoyed the show we went with your nan and granddad they're like obsessed with puppetry of the penis they've been a few times mom they've been seven times (laughs) But it's amazing what they can do. But I've got to say, it, it wasn't the least bit er- erotic. Well, no, not when you're sitting there with your parents. And in my case, your parents and your grandparents. Like, I, And then my boyfriend at the time is like, what is this mad family that I am getting into? I think he already knew that. Yeah, I think that's why he left. Um, <laughs> So this is also influenced by some of the views of uh, St. Augustine. By his view, right, anything that was not for procreation, again, he considered evil. Mm. But that meant even having sex for pleasure with your marital partner. Mm. And he had this really, well, sad conception that any act of procreation you had to um, go into it with a natural depression. Like you had to be sad going in there and doing, you know, what God wanted you to do. He describes it as a burden that must be bared um, and that it's, you know, with sadness that you and your marital partner must engage in coital acts. But I think what's really interesting was St. Augustine was a little playboy in his time. Like, he was an absolute libertine. <laughs> so so basically, he wasn't practicing what he was preaching. <laughs> well, he, he, he was, but this is, like, he only has his conversion at, like, 32, right? Yeah. So prior to 32, this man, I think at 16, he gets hitched with another woman, and he doesn't want to be with her, and so he is screwing everyone else under the sun, gets uh, what was a 12-year-old girl pregnant at the time. But then this is a pattern of behavior for Augustine. He, like, continues on. He um, has, like, another affair, gets someone else pregnant. And then eventually he gets engaged again. And he's like, no, actually, I'm going to dedicate my life to the church. I think that's simpler. St. Augustine's views have basically determined our views on shame and sex today. But it's only at 32 that he comes around and he says, you know what, sex is bad and it's taking control of my entire life and we shouldn't do it. But I guess the point is that Augustine did it for a really long time. Uh, Like he has this quote where he says, grant me chastity and constancy, only not yet. Where he basically is writing about the fact that he knows he needs to be chaste but he doesn't want to do that yet. So God, can you forgive him? Like <laughs> It's just like that kind of like, well, just go ahead and do it and apologize later. It is. Yeah. But I suppose that the thing is, though, that was very different in those days. We weren't actually, we didn't have such um, an acceptance of people's different identities and no. sexual preferences. No. But what I find incredible is today where we live in a, in a society where we are more accepting and mm. we do understand that people identify in different ways and have different sexual preferences. So many people that we know are gay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You're how, just thinking how, of all how, my friends. <laughs> well, but how can therefore 
mm-hmm. oral sex and anal sex yeah. still be considered by such a large proportion of the population yeah. to not be sex. That means that yeah. we're, so many of your friends, they're all virgins. <laughs> I think probably one of the most infamous examples of this uh, came from President Bill Clinton uh, with his White House intern, Monica Lewinsky. Uh, That actually became like a nationwide issue in 1998 when people asked, what even is sex? Well, no, they didn't ask that. He said... I did not have sexual relationships with her. Is that, is that your idea of the accent? Yeah, that, I did not have sexual relations with that one. <laughs> we don't do accents. <laughs> but then it did. It became this whole issue around what is sex. Because basically what had happened was that uh, Clinton was accused of multiple sexual encounters with Lewinsky, and yet he denied all of them. Um, and very later on in this kind of court case, it became apparent that he had in fact had oral sex with Lewinsky by a stain on her dress and other confessions. But the whole point was, was that sex? Basically in the court case, right, he has been asked, have you ever had sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky as that term is defined in deposition exhibition one? And his answer was no. I did not have sexual relationships with her. Because, and this is what I think is so interesting, right? That definition of deposition, exhibition one, that he was asked about, meant that he had to come into contact with her genitals with the intention to gratify or please them in any kind of way. And that's not what happened. So Clinton hadn't actually come into any contact with those parts of Lewinsky. No, because he didn't give her anything. He just received. And receiving was not sex. So by that logic, she had had sex with him, but he had not had sex with her. Makes sense to me. Because the study that you were drawing on, that was pretty recent, right? That one was. That was from 2014. That was the um, Australian uh, National Survey on Sexual Relationships. Yeah. And that's the last big national one that's been done in Australia. Yes. So that was when they had 68% of people still thought that oral wasn't sex. It's actually changed a little bit, though, in our survey. Mm-hmm. Uh, that gone up a little bit more so, but it was still only 76% of people. And uh, for context, we put out our survey as part mm. of Sextistics. Mm. As a result of the pandemic, right, mm. all of these national surveys, which are normally done every decade or so. That's right. Um, it just hasn't been done because they would normally have been gathering the evidence around evidence (laughs) I sound like a lawyer um yeah I'm gonna condemn you all um but they would be gathering don't go and have sex (laughs) don't do it (laughs) Augustine says no (laughs) it's a bad thing unless you have a baby you intrinsically evil (laughs) I see you making a hamburger with your penis (laughs) but normally they would have been gathering all of the surveys around the pandemic when it hit right uh, uh, but I think that they are in the process. Okay. Uh, but it does take a very long time to to get data for all these uh, national surveys. 
because they, they end up with about 20,000 surveys going in and it takes them about two years to collect the evidence. Right. That's actually a really long time. Well, it, well, it is, um, which is why I was so nerdy and so excited when we put our survey out. <laughs> <laughs> you were so excited. You were just like sitting by the computer like, yes, well, all these people well, are telling me about well, how much they must have been. But, 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 yeah, but you, should, <laughs> you don't understand it. It's so exciting. There were real life people that we could actually see them. Well, no, we couldn't see them. Let's <laughs> no, no, just clarify. See them. We couldn't yes. see them. And it was completely <laughs> anonymous, but we could see that results were coming in. And we, we have like 14,000 people who actually wanted to tell us about their experiences and about how they felt and <laughs> how often they were having sex, what kind of sex they were having, who they like having sex with, uh, as opposed to who they are having sex with. Because yeah. that's a very different thing. I mean, I think that's, you know, something we should get into in some detail as mm. well over our conversation mm. that when it comes to sex, there can be a very big difference between who you're having sex with and who you actually are attracted to. And also how you identify, yes. Yeah. Um, so it's not, it does, does appear that a lot of people do identify more with who they're attracted to as opposed to who they're actually having sex with. And that, mind you, that depends on what kind of sex they're having, doesn't it? <laughs> because clearly, for a lot of people, if you're having anal penetration or oral, you're not having sex. I just find it so interesting um, that in terms of all of these various acts. And like, as you say, this is why so many queer people are lost from Mm. surveys. Because if you're trying to do a survey on how frequently people have sex and their sexual behavior, and you're saying that the sex acts, which are the the staples of the queer community in a lot of ways, don't classify as sex, Mm. then it doesn't actually matter if you've put out a thing saying, you know, how do you identify, blah, blah, blah. Your stats are lost, mm. which is why one of the like the big things that we kind of stumbled upon when we were doing this research was that by national studies in Australia, and they were comparable in the US and the UK, they said that uh, the homosexual population was only like 1.2%, which felt incredibly low from our lived reality that only 1.2 percent of people would identify as homosexual even less as bisexual Mm. but then you tore apart the statistics Mm. and kind of worked out why that's the case a lot of it is also that there are people out there who don't identify as necessarily as homosexual but they're still having sex with the same same sex themselves yeah they're just not identifying that way and a lot of this is also to do with the fact that people change these days. Yeah. We don't, we, we're not necessarily locked into little boxes. No. You know, the way that we feel about people, the way that we act, our experience, it changes all the time. Absolutely. Well, yeah, and I think having that like fluid conception mm. of sexuality, right? That the fact that your sexuality can change, you can be surprised by it, you can be drawn to someone you didn't mm. know. And in a lot of ways, I think that's, more um familiar than the kind of views on sexuality we had like Mm. you know back in ancient greece and the ancient world and everything right you know i'm I'm gonna go to sparta kind of quickly but like there was times in sparta where you would have like a kind of marital relationship right you know man woman family Mm. but then the man would go off to war 
And it was very much accepted that in the time at war, they would need to kind of fulfill their needs. And so they would engage in a lot of uh, queer activity on the battlefield. And the same kind of went for women, right? You know, they they would occupy themselves back home. But the, because we didn't have this conception of, um, you know, homosexual and heterosexual, something, a definition we only have in the 19th century, really, when you have the likes of Calf, Debbin and Freud, Back then, when you don't have this kind of categorization, people could change as environments change and situations change. And yeah, we're kind of seeing that today in a lot of mm. ways. So they weren't as defined. And, and, and now no. we're, we're, we actually are into a lot more labels these days. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't understand that. So you can identify as bisexual. doesn't mean to say you're having sex with males and females no it's a mark of your attraction that's right when you you're going through all of these different um research studies Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. we have done sometimes the information can be very contradictory from one to the other and then you really have to dig deep to actually find out what was it they were asking how do they define things what information did they get and that was one of that was. Do you remember that was one of the really hard things when we put the survey together? Yes. Yeah, because we've been critiquing all of this, yes. being like, you know, all of these studies failed because yeah. they didn't have a definition yeah. of sex, and then we had to do it, and we're like, oh, it's yes. hard. <laughs> and what was harder was that we needed to get information that we could compare mm-hmm. back to all of the other national studies, mm-hmm. which meant that our questions had to be really almost identical to theirs because you mm-hmm. can't compare you can't compare an apple to a pear as I kept saying to you we have to compare (laughs) apples with apples so you can't then say something's changed unless you're kind of asking the same questions Mm. and we felt so bad about some of these questions that we had to ask because they were so generic and binary and binary yeah um and those little square boxes so we did do that but then we did ask other questions where we gave people the opportunity to actually write down so so yes you had to put down we we did expand like the gender identities Mm -hmm. and things like that but then we let people put the other category in and then let us know how they felt about themselves and wow that was mind-blowing that was the amount of different ways that people were describing themselves and and their sexuality and their identity yeah and I think that's you know one thing that really shocked me when we started our project Mm -hmm. was um something you said to me um that in most past national surveys or big surveys Mm -hmm. the category for other you have an option generally to select other but it's disregarded in a lot of studies, the other category is disregarded. Because they kept saying it was so small. Yes. Well. They're like, oh, it's not, you know, statistically significant enough to actually go into. But when we put a list of other categories down and we gave them weight and we gave them uh, a description and we let that affect other things, one of the most shocking things, do you remember that we found, I think it's 6.61%. percent were in the other category. Other category. That's massive. That's, that's massive. I think a lot of the reason that people actually chose that, though, because they were then given the option to actually write down absolutely how they describe themselves in the yep. other category. Not so it wasn't just a box like, oh, like, I'm, I'm just, I'm just that person who doesn't. I'm just fit. other. Like I'm just, yeah. uh, I'm un- yeah. unidentified. Yeah. Do you know? Our category was, you know, if you're not in those above, how do you identify? And there was so many different variations and. Which is so interesting in itself that, you know, we now feel that I think in this in this day and age that we can actually don't have to just take 
those little boxes and be there but they the people describe themselves in all sorts of different ways didn't they do you know what it's 7.9 percent of people that identified in the other category like that's massive Mm. and just some of the labels that you know we hadn't included in um as options but were there were things along the lines of you know demisexual pansexual omnisexual heteroflexible panromantic bipolyqueer polyamorous abrosexual polysexual bicurious um questioning gray sexuality biromantic you know the the list went on and on and on Mm. and i think it was really interesting because when we had that category and some of those ones were like oh we should have included that and got some more information and we're now doing a follow-up survey Mm. so everyone beware uh there was one category that came out and it was like sapphic sexuality which obviously comes from um sappho who was the um the ancient greek poet philosopher she's considered one of the uh the muses that you'll find over at the vatican but you know she has this incredible poetry which we only have one poem in full others are just in fragments uh, back from ancient times where she expresses her longing for her uh, other woman lovers and i think actually mm. mum you're gonna love this fact i don't know if you've i've told you you know this i before. like facts <laughs> <laughs> but sappho hails from the isle um isle of lesbos which is in hindsight where we're going to get lesbian obviously but not for a very long time <laughs> she, she lives on the isle of lesbos and the first person to kind of say lesbian is actually aristotle who describes the oral activity that happens with where sappho hails is lesbazine that's what he starts to call oral sex because ah. everyone's practicing it on the isle of lesbos which is basically licking people out because that's what sappho was doing because in ancient greece at the time you would have these um pedestry relationships which are basically like a almost like a culturally accepted queer relationship between an older man and a younger man. That wouldn't go down too well today. <laughs> but it, it, it was continued in practice until um, the 18th century Europe. So like the master? Yes. Ah. This was practiced by men up until this time. Uh, there's a fantastic, um, Rudolf uh, Turnback is a fantastic scholar who actually writes about the fact that this was still practiced in the 18th century um, as like a way of initiating boys. What's very interesting about this, which I kind of think is forgotten and a lot of times we turn back, you weren't actually allowed to have any kind of sexual behavior with the boy, but it was a erotic love that wasn't sexual. So erotic, you know, has all the connotations of like excitement and desire, mm. but it wasn't allowed to progress there. So you had to fall in love with the boy. It's still fucked up. Let's just be clear. It's still fucked up. Yeah. It's still very <laughs> fucked up. I'm glad you put that bit in there. It's still very, very, very <laughs> fucked up. Um yeah. But I think it's part of history that we kind of need to talk about in a lot of ways. Because that was that if that went from ancient times until the 18th century, but we kind of like erased it for a while. There's a lot of men that have been fucked up by that. So we we should acknowledge that. But one of the things about that and why I'm kind of contextualizing that is that male homoerotic behavior was such a big part of the ancient world. You know, it was a part of a man's transition from boy to man. And what Sappho kind of did over on the Isle of Lesbos, um, that she started running schools um, for girls to become educated. And she's like, she let all of her female students fall in love with one another. And she's like, they're not allowed to, because they weren't allowed to be educated in a lot of places. But actually at her schools, she (laughs) taught them how to love one another. 
erotically. Um, and so basically Lesbos is just this wonderful haven of gay activity. And Sappho is writing all of these like poems um, expressing, even that she explains in one how to use a dildo on her partner. And I think that's probably the oldest description of like a, a gay love scene we have in writing so it really was a good education there it was fantastic honestly i would have loved school so much (laughs) but there you are i mean that's what that because that's one of the other things that has been brought up in all of these surveys is that education is uh giving you access to these more liberal ideas and that basically people with more education are having more sexual partners and uh, are basically participating in uh, a lot more activities That was one of the things that really shook me. I think when you came with this stat that basically the higher education you have, the more likely you are to identify as homosexual, the more likely you are to use a dildo, the more likely you are to masturbate. No, no, you have to be really like a little bit careful with some of these things. You keep thinking that because the percentage of people who are identifying as homosexual, um, a large percentage of them have had uh, post-secondary education and have gone to colleges and got degrees. That doesn't mean to say, as me, I keep trying to explain, there's a difference between <laughs> correlation and causation. Uh, does anyone else have a teacher for a mum? Oh, my God. <laughs> no, but in going, going to university does not make you gay. But the types of people who go to university are are exposed maybe to more liberal attitudes because they've read around things a little bit more. I don't know. But there is a larger proportion of people who are identifying Mm. as homosexual who have gone to university. Mm. So it's Mm. it's, it's not, it doesn't make you. It (laughs) doesn't make you gay. No, it doesn't make you gay. And it doesn't doesn't make you have more partners, although all these surveys are actually showing that there is a correlation. Correlation? That's correlation? The, that's that the, the word. word. That's the word, Esme. So therefore, yes, um, you know, there is a higher proportion of, you know, people with, with education that, um, or higher education, who are having more sexual partners later on. So do you think that's like... Um I want, aren't you doing your PhD, by the way, Esme? How many degrees do you have, Mum? Because it's uh, more than me. That's all I'm saying. Um, but kind of like bringing that back before we talk about Mum and her various degrees. Um, <laughs> but bringing that back to something like Sappho then, right? Mm. You know, that that I, even back in the ancient world is speaking to something we see today, right? Yeah. She educated the men. She uh, empowered them. She empowered them, you know, uh, potentially, you know, she's not sitting there being like, this is how you pleasure your female lover. It was more in, from what we understand, there's limited, let's let's just mm. clarify, there's limited, obviously, information we have from the ancient world that we can be like, that's accurate. But what we can see is that women went to school, finally, on this island. She helped them get educated. You know, not all of that is about the kind of learning and writing we would know today. It's more about, you know, how to hold home, but still education, education yeah. in some sense. But, but make, making them feel good about themselves, making them feel that they actually can take control yes yes and that they actually have a right to be pleasured themselves as mm-hmm. well it's not just having to let's lie back and take one for britain yeah <laughs> <laughs> lie back and take one for britain yeah. <laughs> i love it <laughs> no but i think that is such like you know when we're talking about history being incredibly cyclical there is a perfect example mm. right ancient world yeah 
And that's, we're still saying the same thing today. You know, when you have access to education, whether that's primary, secondary, Mm. higher education, what have you, that increases the correlation. (laughs) (laughs) But about your sexual empowerment Mm. and your sexual activity and also your confidence to maybe proclaim a a different identity Mm. than heterosexual. We did that research uh, and we we looked back at people's educational levels because that's what all the old surveys have done. Could it be, like, for instance, in, like, for instance, in our survey, mm. we had a massive, like, we had, like, was it 30, 34% of people identified as bisexual? Yeah. We did actually have a lot of people on our survey who'd actually gone and done some kind of college degree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But could it be that people nowadays are... You don't necessarily have to be going to college and university, but because we've all got access so much to the internet now, yeah. in in the past you did, you didn't go to somewhere else. Like you you stayed at home, you and then you got a job near you. Your world was quite small, absolutely. But nowadays everybody's world has opened up because yeah. you've got this access to the internet. You can see all these things that are going on. You know, you've got social media which Mm -hmm. is exposing you to the world maybe that's why lots of people have become more liberal in their ideas as well because it's a form of education isn't it i think so massively even when you had something like the boom of the printing press you know around that turn of the 17th 18th century and uh, people especially women who they're mainly illiterate for a very very long time and they're finally able to read and purchase books and everything but we see a change in sexual behavior even then because you know they're finally able to explore ideas like romance novels you know that's the boom of the romance novel mills and boom yeah yeah. (laughs) mills and boom of the you know the 18th century but that that does like you know that takes off because finally women and men uh, are exposed to ideas about love and sexual relationships that weren't ever accessible to them if you weren't told something or you didn't you know you weren't perfectly informed about something you wouldn't learn it Mm. but books then are kind of like the social media equivalent to now yes i think about when even I was going through puberty. Do you remember that Kaz Cook's book you bought me, like um, <laughs> something for girls? And that was like my Bible. Thank you, Kaz Cooks, if you're listening. Um, but, you know, it did everything. It had sections on like how to catch a man, like what, what to happen with your period, uh, what contraception is and how to use it. And I remember on sleepovers, we'd like bring the book out and like me and my friends would like sit there and like learn a new fact about our bodies. You know, one of them was like body hair, like girls who are going to get body hair one day. Uh, and we were like, oh no, gross. <laughs> what is this <laughs> but like you were learning facts like that, that you otherwise wouldn't have come across I'm but I'm sure that's very different to a generation today where you can kind of look up everything but well it, you don't even have to look up everything you just switch something on and things come up don't they basically all of that is sex literacy right you know that's what the access to the internet and social media has kind of given us well that's the whole point isn't it so the more information that we have we can get information from all sorts of things I mean our survey was information but you get information from the internet from social media we've at the world is full of data by the way did you know that Esme? <laughs> the world is full of data which is just 
tells so many stories and stories and understanding and interpreting things mm. is what gives us the ability to actually understand ourselves, absolutely and what's going on around us yeah. and gives us that power to actually feel it's okay who we are and it's uh, okay where we're going to be in mm. the future absolutely and I you know more than anything else I think it also speaks to the importance of good education yes um and having you know but having figures who have studied all of these things actually come on to social media I mm. think is a really fantastic way to get these ideas and this relevant accurate information out there to mm. a mainstream audience you know I think even being able to sit around here today with you who is a PhD Cambridge educated NASA headhunted like absolute powerhouse but you're here I'm actually just your mum you know that you're also you? my mum but yeah, I love you but very I just, much I just want to say that <laughs> but that is so compelling in itself in terms of making education something that we can all do you know you're sitting around this table with me having a glass of champagne thank you very much for the champagne mm-hmm. I didn't buy it my mum did um uh, but, but actually I, I buy most things can I just point that out <laughs> Coffees are always on me. <laughs> but that is such a beautiful privilege and truly special. And I think you've decided to kind of dedicate a lot of your energy and your immense big brain energy into helping people better understand their identity, gender and sexuality. And the world thanks you for that. <laughs> Actually, I just thought I was helping you. Oh, well, and then that too. <laughs> but thank you so much for being here today with me it has been an absolute pleasure um thank you for making the world a little bit more sex literate just by being here and thank you for letting me be here shall we cheers cheers And if you want to learn more kinky history and maybe even some sexistics, you're going to have to keep joining us here at Kinky History, the podcast. Mm. <gasps> oh!